the year before this ice seemed to be hanging by a thread when we went there it was hanging by a filament and he said we shouldn't stay here too long let's get in the plane again because this place could crack up at any minute and a week later it did Welcome to Radio Davos from the World Economic Forum where we look at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. In this episode, as the COP26 climate summit begins, we hear from this veteran environmental journalist whose career has taken him from those UN summits to the front lines of climate change around the world. 4,600 metres high in the Andes is a lake which is below glaciers that are melting as the warming happens. We hear how the impact of global warming, melting ice and rising sea levels is affecting communities around the world, from climate refugees to the border of multinational companies that face increasing legal challenges for their greenhouse gas emissions. If you were to win, you could sue virtually anybody who's an emitter of greenhouse gases. It would be an extraordinary precedent. And we get a first flavour of the Glasgow Climate Summit, which some are seeing as the last chance for the world to come together to stop climate catastrophe. If Glasgow fails, then the whole thing fails. The Paris Agreement will have crumpled at the first reckoning. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. Every year there's about 800 billion tonnes of ice that melts off the land. That works out about a bucket of water per person an hour every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year and then the conclusion is it's a lot more simple to cut greenhouse gas emissions. From COP26 This is Radio Davos. Welcome to Glasgow, where heads of government are meeting at the COP26 Climate Summit. Outside the conference centre, you're hearing a traditional Scottish band, and the musicians playing the pipes and drums are wearing papier-mâché heads of some of those world leaders. Nafkota Dabi of Oxfam, which organised the publicity stunt, explained. They are leaders of the most powerful, wealthiest, the most polluting nations. They're part of a Scottish pipe band. Instead of addressing the climate crisis with concrete solutions, they're just blowing hot air. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, seen in that protest holding his bagpipes, said if this summit fails, the whole endeavour to tackle climate change fails with it. Over these next two weeks, delegates will talk about greenhouse gas emissions targets, about financing to help poorer countries cope with climate change, and about how economic activities need to change to stop the worst of climate change. We'll be podcasting every few days while COP26 is on to bring you a flavour of what's happening there, and also talking to experts in government, business and civil society to hear their solutions. Here's one of the speakers from the opening session at COP26, India Logan Riley, an indigenous activist from New Zealand, expressing frustration at all the talk and the lack of progress in her lifetime. My name is India, and I am from a nation called Ngāti Kahungunu on the east coast of the North Island of Aotearoa, colonially known as New Zealand. In February of last year, catastrophic climate change-filled wildfires tore their way across eastern Australia. The smoke cloud was so big that the sun turned red in my own homelands, far from the east coast of Australia. Six years ago, I first spoke these stories into this space, and every year since, I have repeated the same words, wildfires, sea level rise, wildfires, suffering, sea level rise, biodiversity loss, sea level rise. Emissions continue to rise. I'm the same age as these negotiations. I've grown up, graduated, fallen in love, fallen out of love, stopped and changed a couple of careers along the way, all while the global north, colonial governments and corporations fudge with the future. Hands and minds made this present world, and so it is also hands and hearts and minds that can remake it. 
Maori climate activist India Logan Riley speaking at the opening of COP26. Our main guest on Radio Davos this episode is someone who for many years was a fixture at climate cops, Alistair Doyle, who reported on them for the global news agency Reuters. He also travelled the world to see the impact climate change was having, from the Antarctic to low-level tropical islands sinking below the waves. He's brought the stories together in a book called The Great Melt, Accounts from the Frontline of Climate Change. I asked Alistair why he'd written the book. So I've tried to go and talk to people on the front lines to see their experiences, people who are moving inland in, in Fiji, people who are planning to move inland in Panama from the Caribbean, from low-lying islands, people up in the Andes who are threatened by glaciers melting. I went with the British Antarctic Survey down to down to Antarctica, where you know people are trying to understand the pace of this melt. This is one of the real aspects of Code Red for Humanity, as the United Nations puts it. There's a note in in the the, the latest uh, report by the UN uh, panel of climate scientists that has a dotted line showing that seas could rise up by up to two meters this century. In the very worst case, you know they're likely to rise by much less. The people I've tried to meet are the people figuring out what to do on the front lines, people who are living on the front lines, wanting to, fearing that they'll be pushed from their homes and talking to them about their experiences, extraordinary sort of resilience in most cases. And I just sort of traveled around and have uh, relied on the kindness of strangers to help me out and talk to me. And some of those strangers have been in quite remote places. Take us to the South Pacific. Now, out there, there are low-lying islands that could disappear completely if climate change isn't slowed down. And in your book, you look at what will happen to those populations if their countries disappear. And you found a historical example of population relocation, moving entire populations off an island to somewhere else. And there are some lessons on how it might be done in the future and of the things that can go desperately wrong. Yeah, so these people are from Banaba Island uh, after the World War II. Their island in the Central Pacific, which is now part of the Pacific Island state of Kiribati, uh, it had been ruined by British phosphate mining from the early uh, uh, 20th century. And so they were and then invaded by the Japanese. The Japanese had taken over during World War II. And about a thousand of the people from Banaba Island, sometimes known as Ocean Island, were just moved south to Fiji. It was part of the British Empire at the time, so it was easy, fairly easy for people to be relocated like that. But they were they were taken to um, Rambi Island off eastern Fiji, where they were just sort of told to rebuild their lives. And you know, they were told they were shown pictures of uh, wonderful houses in Fiji, but they, these houses turned out to be in the capital, Suva, there were no island, there were no, there were no um, uh, houses in this island where they were taken to. They were just, uh, they were just given tents and forced to live on on the shore there and rebuild their lives. Completely different to the island they left. And, and in the middle of the night, the first night, people sort of tell this story about how the cows uh, came down from the forest up in the hillsides there and, and trampled on the tents and. People thought there were monsters coming to attack them and that there was a, a stream nearby that which was sort of babbling and, and they, they, the, the island they come from was drought prone. There were no large mammals on the island at all. Uh, they were just terrified by this. So it's a, that's a story of how, you know, people really need to think about what's going to happen when, when you move. You've really got to go and have a look beforehand if migration has to happen as sea levels rise and swamp some low-lying islands. 
Right. I mean, so they weren't evacuated because their island was swamped by rising sea levels. Their island had been destroyed by this phosphate mining. But the reason you, you go into it in the book is because this is likely to happen to low-lying island states with sea level rise. Their, their countries are going to disappear and they will need to relocate somewhere. And so there are cases like this in history where entire populations, in this case a very you know, relatively small population, has been relocated. But with the good and bad consequences, you write about what are their um, uh, nationality rights, what nationality are they, what, who can they vote for, who is their parliament, if their country effectively doesn't exist anymore. Although country status changes over time, they're part of the British Empire now, that, that's no longer the case. So you, look, you go into, in, in several chapters in this, into a climate migration that we're going to see, and also indeed um, climate refugees. You mentioned a case about um, someone who applied to be a refugee, he couldn't return to his home because of climate change. Ioane Taitiota, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right, from Kiribati, uh, again, he, he went to New Zealand, I think in 2006 um, with his family, but he, his visa ran out, his work visa ran out. And so he went to, his, his case went to the New Zealand Supreme Court. He tried to argue that he was a climate refugee. His island where he lived is threatened by sea level rise and therefore he, he and his family should be allowed to stay on. Uh, this went way up to the New Zealand Supreme Court where they turned him down. But since then, the UN Human Rights Committee has sort of sided with New Zealand in that case. But there's been a, a ruling that says, uh, I've got it here in front of me, countries may not deport individuals who face climate change induced conditions that violate the right to life. So he lost in his case, but there could be an opening for people in future to make this climate change argument. Of course, you've got all sorts of other problems with migration too, because the, the Refugee Convention of 1951 says you've got to have a, a well-founded fear of persecution, which is driving you from your, your homeland, uh, you know, on basis of race and religion or, or uh, you know, for persecution. Um, but in this case, of course, if you're fleeing a low-lying island, you're fleeing to the place that is the source of your persecution, which kind of turns that refugee convention on its head and means that <laughs> there's going to be an awful lot of um, head-scratching uh, by yeah. lawyers trying to figure out what, what any of this means and whether, it, whether you can have environmental refugees. The persecution in this case is by climate change, isn't it? I guess that the kind of thing that gets tested in a court, be that the Supreme Court of New Zealand or elsewhere. And talking of court cases, and it's something we've covered on Radio Davos, the idea that the courts are becoming a place where climate action is being tested or being forced. In Peru, there's this lawsuit that you tell us about against uh, a European um, electricity generating company. This is an extraordinary one, and it shows the global nature of climate change. And where does the liability lie for it? I went up to the Andes because I read about this case. You know, you have to go up, take the bus and take a hire a car to go up to, it's about 4,600 meters high in the Andes, is a lake which is below glaciers that are melting as, as the warming happens. And this lake burst back in 1941 and swamped the valley below with a massive mudslide and 1,800 people were killed in the city of Huaraz. Down in the valley, Sao Luciano Liua is a, a, a Peruvian farmer whose house is in the path of a 
potential mudslide from this uh, from this lake. And he's taken a German power company, RWE, to court, arguing that it has emitted half a percent of all the greenhouse gases in all the atmosphere over the past century or so. So he says RWE owes him half a percent of the cost of building better defences for his lake, which he works out as being half a percent as being uh, 17,000 euros. So it's a pretty insignificant sum, but this has been going through the courts. And of course, if you can make a link, RWE says it's not responsible for the melting of the glaciers half a world away, and that these glaciers would be melting even if the company never existed. But this, this is sort of within the courts, and it's a case that's being very closely watched because if you were to win, you could sue virtually anybody who's an emitter of greenhouse gases. It would be an extraordinary precedent if he wins. Coronavirus has meant that, you know, the gathering of evidence, which means German experts have to travel to Peru to see what's happening. It hasn't happened. You know, it's still in the courts. One of very many emerging climate lawsuits around the world. One of probably hundreds or thousands of very different court cases around the world about climate change. The great thing about the book is that it doesn't just take us to the courtroom, it takes us actually to the place, to the lake where this disaster happened, which before I, you probably couldn't blame the war in the 1940s on climate change, but they're having to reinforce this because the ice melt is so fast now because of global warming. Let's talk about the first chapter. It's probably the most kind of spectacular one. I don't know how it felt like you went to a place called the Wilkins Ice Shelf. Tell us what that is, where it is, where it is now, what it was like when you were there. I mean, what was it? So, yes, the Wilkins Ice Shelf is, or was, uh, some of it's still there, but some of it's washed away out into the sea, um, is an ice shelf, which is the end of uh, the ice sheet, the ice covering Antarctica, which can be five kilometers thick in places. This is the, the end of the ice that goes into the sea in it it floats on the sea. It's the shelf that surrounds much of Antarctica. It's got ice shelves on it. They can be hundreds of meters thick. This particular one is quite small by Antarctica standards up on the Antarctic Peninsula, the bit that sticks up towards uh, South America. And we went there with the British Antarctic Survey in, in 2009 with a, a colleague from Reuters, Stuart MacDill and a, a few scientists on this red twin otter plane equipped with skis to land on the ice, the slushy ice. It was pretty nail-biting when we came into land because a buzzer went off in the plane just before we landed. The alarm went off effectively, and we thought, what on earth is going to happen now? Um, we're going to fall in a crevasse when we land on this ice shelf, which is a flat area of slushy ice. When we eventually got out onto the ice, the pilot was completely chirpy and completely sort of nonplussed by this. And we said, what on earth was that buzzer? And he said, oh, I forgot to tell you. I always try to land like that because the buzzer going off shows that we've hit stall speed, which means that we're about to fall out of the sky because we're flying too slowly. But if you're about to land on snow and ice that is about the best thing you can do because then you don't slide too far before you come to a halt so if there is some crevasse or hole in the ice that you're going to fall into um, you're less likely to do it if you're only sliding a, you know 50 meters rather than 100 when you come into land so why on earth would you go there why are you going there why are those scientists you're with going there the science there was to have a look at it um, with David Vaughan, one of the leading glaciologists of the British Antarctic Survey. He put up a, a GPS 
pole there, which would then monitor the, the movements in the ice, which could give an impression of whether it was likely to break up or not. So the GPS was there for probably less than three months, and then the whole place shattered and broke up. It's now gone, that area of ice in Antarctica, which was a solid mass of ice connecting Antarctica with an island offshore, Charka Island, is now gone, gone from the map. So, you know, <laughs> three months after we landed, David Vaughan told us a year before this ice seemed to be hanging by a thread. When we went there, it was hanging by a filament. And he said, you know, we, we shouldn't stay here too long. Let's get in the plane again, because this place could crack up at any minute. And it not any minute, but any week or month later, it did. Tell us about this ice, though, because it's floating on water. So the fact that it then melts, there is potentially a significant threat from this melting. What is it? The problem with the ice shelves is, of course, as they break up, as the planet warms up, especially as they're being eaten away from underneath by warmer ocean currents, is that they can break off and fall into the sea. And then there is this huge amount of ice up on land in Antarctica that can slide faster towards the sea. Uh, Some glaciologists compare the ice in Antarctica to uh, bottles of wine with the facing out to sea with the corks in them. The corks, in a way, are the ice shelves. Um, And if those corks go, the whole ice can flow out into the sea. And this is the really huge worry. And the huge unknown about climate science, as I understand it, is that nobody really knows what's going to happen there. You know, Antarctica could contribute a metre, perhaps, to sea level rise in the worst case this century. In the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's report from August, with Code Red, as it was called, there's a note at one point that says, sea level rise of 15 metres cannot be ruled out with high emissions by the year 2300. And that would be taking the cork out of the bottle of Antarctica. That would transform coastlines around the world, of course. Talking of scientific uncertainties, you also take us to a place where sea level appears to be falling, and that's the Baltic Sea. This is a fascinating story, and you went in search of a rock. That's right. So the Baltic Sea is falling relative to the land and has been doing from time immemorial from Viking days, it's because the the land used to be weighed down during the Ice Age by a massive weight of ice. And since the Ice Age has finished, it's, it's rebounding. The land is rebounding and rising out of the sea like a sort of foam mattress. When you sit on it at, at home, it takes a while before it to reshape. But nobody really figured out what why this was happening. Some people thought it might be water just gurgling away into the into the ground somewhere, but nobody figured it out until... Anders Celsius, who's best known for his temperature scale, came along in the in the early 18th century and decided to try and figure out what is happening. So that rock, uh, as you mentioned, it in it's now in the forest, uh, a little bit back from the shore. But at the time, in the in the 16th century, this rock was a seal rock. It was mentioned on land documents because seals used to sunbathe on top. They could only have sunbathed on the top where they could be hunted and speared by the local hunters if it was just peeking out of the sea in those days. So the, the seals could climb up into it, onto it in the, in the 16th century. But by the time Anders Celsius came around to review these documents, he found that one of these rocks was now pretty much high and dry out of the water. 
you know, that's in seventeen the 1730s. Now, 200 years later, it's way, way back in the forest. There are trees growing around it. Martin Ekman, who's a, a great Swedish scientist, helped me track down this rock in a very remote part of the forest. So, you know, Anders Celsius began the science of sea level rise in the sense because he first monitored the Baltic where the sea level is falling. And now, of course, our whole goals of climate change are measured in degrees Celsius, which he came up with. And Mr. Celsius didn't quite get it right, did he? He still thought the water level was falling, the Baltic Sea was falling. And it was later that it was realised that actually the sea wasn't falling, the land was rising. And indeed, it's still rising. But also with Celsius, I like the, the point about his famous scale. That was initially reversed. He wanted 100 degrees to be freezing and zero to be boiling. Is that right? That's right. That's right. He decided that you know, water stops being water at uh, 100 degrees where it boils away. So I think he set, it at, he set that as zero and thought that, okay, well, we'll go back to, we'll call 100 freezing point. I think it was partly because also in Sweden, temperatures below what we now think of as zero are pretty common in wintertime. So, you know, it's 110 degrees today. Of course, it's utterly sweltering to any of us now, but it would just mean, you know, minus 10, a slightly sort of snowing snowing day in the middle of the winter in Sweden. And he was persuaded that it would probably be better the other way around, that the big change for water that we generally experience is from ice to water. So that was then the benchmark zero on the scale. So he just he just was persuaded to reverse it. Alistair Doyle, more from him in just a moment. On each of these episodes from COP26, we're asking a major company to give us what we're calling a 60-second vision of the climate crisis, a chance to say in a nutshell where they stand. This first one is from Anna Borg, president and CEO of Swedish electricity producer Vattenfall. I think that in the energy industry we need to phase out the fossil fuels. That's also one of the reasons why we at Vattenfall have committed to the one and a half degree trajectory of the Paris Agreement. I think that we should not underestimate the challenge and I have full respect for that. What I think we talk too little about are the immense business opportunities that are unfolding in front of us. We actually have the possibility of doing something that is good in general but that will also generate good business. It's important to display that action needs to be taken here and now. Even if we can't solve everything at once, it's important to show that we are taking real steps toward a net zero economy, and that needs to happen now. Anna Borg, the head of electricity producer Vattenfall in Sweden, with her 60-second vision of the climate crisis. You're listening to Radio Davos, where we're talking to Alistair Doyle, who, in addition to travelling the world reporting on the environment, has also sat through dozens of climate summits, like the one currently in Glasgow, and meetings also of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, where governments go word by word through the latest climate change science. I asked Alistair why politicians or their underlings were involved in what one might assume was a purely scientific process. The idea is that by having governments sign off on these meetings, even though they can be obstructive bureaucrats, the idea that that gives them more weight. You notice there are words in a lot of documents. The Paris Agreement, for example, doesn't mention fossil fuels. It talks about greenhouse gases. And the same thing happens in some scientific reports where you know, opposition from oil producers, they don't want fossil fuels mentioned in, in the Paris Agreement. Governments are fighting to limit the damage to their economies in many cases. At the IPCC, you have to get buy-in from the major powers, the China, 
the United States, the European Union, major developing countries, and you've got to get, you've got to reconcile the interests of Saudi Arabia, the OPEC countries, with those of the small island states. So there's all sorts of watering down going along on along the way. Um, Saudi Arabia is often the country that speaks most in these um, these meetings. The one I covered there in the book is about Monaco, where Saudi Arabia is very vocal in saying we don't want this report about sea level rise to be seen as reinforcing other IPCC reports. So the text says that this report merely follows these other reports rather than expands on or reinforces, which is what other countries wanted to say. It's remarkable, kind of what seems like nitpicking from the outside, but I suppose this is legal judicial language which sets precedents which could feed into we were talking about legal cases before, weren't we? You, you mentioned here in one of these meetings, they debated for two hours whether or not to have a comma in a certain place in a text. Two hours, one comma. That was the Bali in Bali, yes. I mean, just the placement of a comma can have billion dollar uh, implications for what things get funded and what don't get funded. In the book, you kind of set out in beautifully illustrated way some of the problems and the risks, but also... As we do on these podcasts, you're looking at some of the solutions or possible solutions, but one of them is eye-popping, and I must admit I hadn't come across this one before. Someone has suggested to protect part of Western Europe, you should put up a wall that would put Donald Trump to shame, I think, a, a seawall which would wall off the entire northwest of Europe. I mean, it sounds like a joke, and I think you interviewed the person who came up with this idea, and your opening gambit was, you know, with all due respect, this is bonkers. But it turns out maybe it's not. Well, indeed, this is Sjord Gruskamp, who's a Dutch oceanographer, um, who who just said, well, you know, if, if seas are going to rise by three or four metres, this type of thing that we've been doing in the Netherlands for centuries just isn't going to work. So you're going to have to think about bonkers ideas like this. Um, and his idea is that you could build a wall between... Brittany and France and the southern southern England. You would then have another wall going from the north of Scotland over to Norway. And that would effectively shut off all the North Sea, Germany to Poland to Russia, you know, around the Baltic Sea. France, uh, Belgium, England would be all sort of part behind this huge wall. And of course, this would not only cost mind-boggling amounts of money, but it would change the ecology of these places completely. But he says, you know, maybe if you think about the cost of protecting your coasts, this is a type of thing we're going to have to think about. You know, another idea that scientists have is that you should pump vast amounts of water back onto Antarctica, um, which, you know, through pipelines fed by wind turbines. These are all crazy ideas, but they say, you know, if we do get down the path of a massive sea level rise, we're going to have to do something about it, which is beyond just sort of reinforcing dikes and so on. The idea of building walls, I don't think it's going to happen. It would destroy the fisheries and the seas and the Baltic Sea, the North Sea, as the rivers would still be flowing into the seas, the Rhine, the Seine, the Thames would all be flowing into these seas. And you'd have to find a way of pumping that extra water out through the dams. You'd have to have huge locks to allow ships to get through back and forth uh, from the Atlantic. It would be just incredibly difficult. But still, the fact that, you know, this type of research gets published and, and people are thinking about it shows that 
you know, maybe maybe we're not thinking enough about this problem. And in terms of pumping water up to refreeze on on icebergs and glaciers, you did your bit for that yourself, didn't you? I've seen a video of you carrying a bucket of water up and throwing it on top of a glacier. This summer I went off to West Norway because scientists based at Leeds University in the UK worked out that every year there's about 800 billion tonnes of ice that melts off the land. And I try to put this into context. So if there's 800 billion tonnes of ice, that's about 100 tonnes per person, each with eight billion people on the planet almost. In terms of personal responsibility, that works out about a bucket of water an hour. So I thought, okay, I'll just try and illustrate this by plucking a bucket of water out of the fjord in West Norway, hiking up the hill, and then leaving this water up there to refreeze. But of course, you know, the catch is that everybody on the planet would have to do that amount of water every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year to do enough of an offset. And then the conclusion is it's a lot more simple to cut greenhouse gas emissions. It's a great read. And you also note that you offset your carbon emissions as you were traveling all over the world. I have incredible guilt, of course, for all the carbon emissions that this uh, trip has involved, going to Antarctica, going to <laughs> Peru, Fiji. Yeah. So yeah, I've, uh, I've paid for the offsets. Well, if people want to visit those places without the carbon emissions, they can, of course, read your book and you take them there as the author. The book is called The Great Melt, accounts from the front line of climate change. The author is Alistair Doyle. Alistair, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Robin. Wonderful to speak to you. Alistair Doyle. Find all our climate change episodes on the website wf.ch slash podcast. And please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. And if you'd like to comment on anything you've heard, please join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with thanks to Gail Markovitz. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back with more from COP26 later this week. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.